We're in John chapter 5. Um, pleased to be able to share this text with you this week. But I want to start off by asking some diagnostic questions for, for us in this room today. And you've got to be honest, okay? Be honest. Uh, how many of you guys have ever broken a mirror? Have you ever broken a mirror? How many of you have broken a mirror and immediately got worried? Right? Oh, no, seven years. Seven years. Better buckle up. How many of you have ever been, been walking down the street and you saw a penny and out of compulsion you just picked up the penny? Right. Because good luck, right? Sure. How many of you actively avoid walking under ladders? Anybody? Right? Uh, you know where I'm going with this? Yeah, black cat. If you see a black cat, you see a black cat and you run, yes? We are superstitious folk, yes? We, we tend to believe, like even those of us who are you know, good Christians, we sometimes mix a little superstition uh, into our faith, right? Like, well, maybe, maybe things would be better. You know, I've been praying for this, but I do remember breaking that mirror, so maybe life has been hard <laughs> for the last year because that mirror got broke, right? And it sounds a little bit silly, but there is a slight bit <clears throat> for some of us, a slight bit of superstition that's worked in with our faith, right? Maybe we don't quite understand what part of the work in the world belongs to God and what part is either random chance or just random supernatural activity. Well, this is what we come to as we come to this particular text this morning. As we've walked through the Gospel of John, we're seeing Jesus encounter individuals. And in this passage, he's going to encounter an individual. But in this passage, the individual sort of serves as a, uh, a lesson as we get to the group that we encounter here. As Jesus encounters the Jews in John chapter 5, we'll start to see an escalation of the conflict between Jesus and this group of people. See, Jesus had made his way back to Jerusalem now. He goes from Samaria to Galilee and now to Jerusalem. And as we come upon this story at first, what we see is a people who are paralyzed by superstition. Paralyzed by superstition. We've seen Jesus work personally with individuals in Samaria and Galilee, but now we're going to see this conflict build with the Jews. Okay, And this is helpful for us to understand. When we come to John talking about the Jews, I mean, some people get nervous when people in our current culture say the Jews, right? And rightly so, because some people legitimately are anti-Semitic. But we have to remember that when we encounter that, don't get nervous because John is a Jew, right? So John can say the Jews. And when he says it, he's primarily talking about that group of religious Jews that are setting themselves really against the work of Christ, resisting what Christ is doing. But there are a few things about this particular narrative that might confuse us a little bit, or at least they'll pull our attention away from the main point. So the first is the setting. And if you have a study Bible and you've read through it, you'll see that there, there are some disagreements on what the name of this pool actually means. And that's really beside the point. The pool, the name Bethesda, uh, or the exact location of the pool. Some text scholars will sort of argue about these things. But, and some might think the name means to, to bubble up due to the design and the location of the pool. Um, but most likely, the root of the word means the pool of healing, which is what most scholars would come to, or the pool of becoming well. So that's one. And closely related to it is this little issue of, just look, look, Look at verse 3 for a second. Can you just look in your Bibles at verse 3? 
Now look at verse 4. And some of you are like, there's no verse 4. Anybody raise your hand if there's no verse 4 in your Bible? Okay. Now some of you have verse 4 in your Bible. If you don't have verse 4, you might be thinking, why is there a verse missing from my Bible? That seems like, for those of us who consider ourselves people of the word, it's a really important thing that there's a verse gone <laughs> from. Who, did Thomas Jefferson do this? Like, what? who's responsible for this? Uh, the reality is that verse 4 was most likely added by a scribe at some point, but it wasn't in John's original manuscripts. And some of your Bibles may have notes about that. But verse 4, and I'll read it because I have it in my Bible. I like the weirder Bibles better. Just kidding. Because an angel would go down into the pool from time to time and stir up the water. Then the first one who got in after the water was stirred up recovered from whatever ailment he had. Now you can understand why this is problematic. Because if you don't read that carefully and you don't understand why the scribe put that in there, it almost seems like if John wrote this, he was advocating for the fact that there really was an angel who stirred up the pool and people really did get healed because of this angel, right? And so therein lies the problem. If John didn't put it in there, we should probably not put it in there. And so at some point, they actually figured out, oh, this was not in the original manuscripts. This was a scribe who included this, right? It's some sort of commentary of what was thought to happen when people gathered at this particular pool. So it's, somebody was like, hey, I think it's important to know this is why a bunch of people were at this pool of healing, right? Specifically that there was an angel of the Lord that came to stir up the waters, and those who were able to make it into the pool after this action would be healed. Now, because John didn't put this in, we don't consider it to be officially part of the narrative, but it is something that most likely John's readers would have understood at the time as being the situation. So I think it's helpful for us to understand that at the time, these people were superstitious. They thought there was an angel, stirred up the water of these pools, and when you got in, you'd get healed. And actually, I, I think it's also one of those cases where this, that commentary helps us grasp the overall meaning of this passage. But before we go on, some of you might pause, and you're panicking right now because you're like, I thought the Bible was inerrant, but there's a verse missing. Let's calm down. Take a deep breath. Okay, calm down. So you think, well, there are errors in the Bible, but let me set you at ease. The Bible in its original manuscripts has no errors. The errors that we see, like in these, these now, they've been passed down from copyists and scribes over the years, and sometimes people make punctuation mistakes, or sometimes people feel free to just throw in a little commentary. That's why it's important for us to go back to these original manuscripts. Like this comes down to a scribal or a copy error, and there are less than 5% of these occurring Okay, 5%, less than 5%, and none with any impact on Christian doctrine. So let's just breathe easy. You can trust the Word of God, okay? But we can also be honest about how the manuscripts have been copied and passed down. If you have more questions, you can pull one of us, pastors, elders, leaders aside, and we'd love to talk to you about that some more. But let's get back to the scene. So here's the main scene. This pool, which again was thought to have healing properties, was frequented by those who were invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. They waited for something supernatural to happen at this pool, and if they were adept enough or had enough help, they found their best chance to be healed right here in this pool. That's why there were a ton, right? A multitude, verse 3, with, within these lay a multitude of the sick. So these sick people in Jerusalem were heading to these healing pools, right? This was their best shot. Maybe... They'd be there at the right time, and maybe God or fate would shine on them that day, and they would walk away with a new life. That's why they're there. 
And one man who was there, Scripture tells us he was there for 38 years. Can you imagine 38 years of hoping that one day there would be a chance or a stroke of divinity that would allow you to be healed? Just one day. If I can get back to the pool, if I can stay at the pool, maybe, maybe the angel will come down. Maybe fate will smile upon me and this will be the day that I win the physical lottery, right? Maybe this will be the day that my life changes. And we're told that he had already been there a long time. So this wasn't just a one-time occurrence, right? It says he had been there for a long time. When Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had already been there a long time. And it's true. There was a, a good deal of Jewish thought that attributes some level of local action to special angels that may have worked through springs or rivers. We know this by reading some of the ancient Jewish texts, the Second Temple texts. It's important for us to understand, though, that John is not endorsing this idea, but it does beg the question, so evidently some people were healed here, right, at some point, okay? How many people had been healed by the troubled waters here at the pool? And there's two levels of sadness at work here. One is the physical malady of the invalid. The second is the spiritual malady of the invalid, but the spiritual is actually worse, which we'll see Jesus address. Spending your whole life rolling the dice that today might be the day that the angel shows up and you're finally made whole. So your whole life, his whole life is just on the chance that, that some power is going to shine on him and smile on him favorably in that moment and he's going to walk away or maybe be a little bit better, but he's banking it all that maybe there's a chance that some power is going to help him. But we also need to acknowledge that supernatural power is attested to in Scripture. Do you believe that? This is not purely a physical world. We're, we're told all through Scripture, right? Even like the war we fight, the battle we fight, it's not against flesh and blood, but rulers and principalities and in the unseen realm, right? That doesn't make you a little bit nervous. It should, Right? Evidently, there was some sort of power here, and people did walk away at times being healed, but we're not absolutely sure that that power was from God or maybe from somewhere else. Because Scripture says that even Satan masquerades as, as an angel of light, he's got some level of power. So these people who were like banking on this superstition that maybe there was some sort of disconnected power here, that maybe it's from God, maybe it's not, but maybe I can be healed. But you know, to neglect a supernatural view of the world is to neglect a right view of the world that God presents to us. The world is weirder than you think it is. And honestly, so is Scripture. <laughs> and in many ways, we might be more disconnected from God's working today because so many people won't even consider looking at the world in this way. And, and they'll even challenge God's power and be like, well, that's all, none of that stuff ever really happens because we know science disproves that. And really, honestly, science never disproves miracles. Miracles are just things that happen. We have God made science, which we would believe, you agree? And he can also bend the physical properties that make it so, right? We, we have to be open to that possibility. And we also have to believe that maybe there are other not so great powers that God is in control over that are fighting against him, which is what scripture tells us, right? So we, we have to be careful about the supernatural stuff. But, but here's a bigger question. What about us? Do you know people who have been waiting around, sort of paralyzed for a long time? trying the same things, hoping for a different outcome every day, caught in some situation and just maybe, just maybe there's a chance that there's some disconnected power out there that I can access. How many people are paralyzed by this type of superstition? Maybe if I find the right motivational program, 
or maybe if I pray hard enough, or maybe if I manifest positive thoughts, I cannot tell you how much I hate that whole scene that like, if you just manifest it, it will come to be. You know what? That is complete garbage because there are legitimately people in this world who are beset with some sort of malady in which they can't even communicate. You understand where I'm going here, right? Like, so like the whole manifesting thing, like maybe, maybe if I just try hard enough to get to God or to get to his power, then maybe my life will change. And honestly, like, at least 50% of the books that, that sort of pass as, like, spiritual advice in the current culture are basically superstition, right? Maybe if I live in the right place or get the right job or have the right partner, maybe things will change if I keep coming back here. The man's primary problem wasn't just his physical reality, but it was tethering his hopes in life to the hope that maybe there was some divine power that would work if I could be in the right place at the right time. I have to access this power. But we're going to find out that no one but Jesus will work. Verses 6 through 10. No one but Jesus will work. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? Which initially seems like a cruel thing to say to a guy who's paralyzed. Right? Of course I want to be healed. I've been at this pool multiple times. I've been here for a very long time. But before we assume this is a rebuke from Jesus, we need to look carefully at Jesus' question. The, the original language words here that Jesus is using is ginomi, which means to come into being or to generate. So this is, this is the, the thing with John's whole gospel, right? That Christ is bringing something out of nothing. He's bringing life out of death, right? He's bringing light out of darkness. Uh, Jesus is asking him, basically, do you want to become different, right? Do you want to become something else? And this is right in line with John's central idea in the prologue about God's creative work through Christ. Jesus didn't just create all things. He's the only one who can recreate things, right? In a subtle way, Jesus is asking if this man really wants to be fully healed, not just do you want to walk, not just do you want to move, but do you really want to be well? Do you want to become something that you currently are not? And further into the story, Jesus is going to seek this man out to press a little more into the idea of real healing. And because most people don't get Jesus, this man answers with a pretty plain answer. Look at the man's response. Sir, the sick man answered, I don't have, I don't have somebody to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. And if I try to go, somebody goes down in front of me. Somebody steps down before me. This man has no earthly help. I mean, think about how sad this is. Not only can he, he can't get himself down there, he doesn't have friends to get him down there. He has no one. No one will work with him. No one will work for him until Jesus shows up and says, do you really want to be different? And to top everything off, his response and his predicament shows that he clearly thinks there's some sort of like magic available that's loosely associated with God's power. Basically, there's a power that isn't personally connected to God that's available if you can get to it in the right way at the right time, and it's not far. This place is not far from the temple of God. The knowledge of who God is is right down the street, but there's a whole group of people banking on some disconnected power from God, and they aren't even getting the truth about God from the people who should have known it the best. You know what I'm saying? Like, how ironic is that? 
Not far from the temple of God, there are sick, hurting people who believe that their best option for healing is a long shot to somehow access God's power. And what's even sadder is that this man doesn't recognize that God in person is standing right next to him. I mean, the the most disturbing thing, like even about the prologue and, and what we see here is he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. They didn't even know him. The one who created this man, the one who knit this man together in his mother's womb is standing beside him. Jesus knew his whole life. And, and he just thinks he's another dude. He just thinks he's another guy. This is the blindness of superstition, right? And this is the blindness of bad theology. Acknowledging God's existence, but denying that he is personal. Personal. He's not just a disconnected power. That he's not made himself known. And again, this is the whole point of John's gospel. The word became flesh. Jesus took on the infirmity of human flesh and subjected himself to being humbled, right? And to death on a cross in order to make it personal. That's the point. Jesus makes it personal. And no one but Jesus is going to work in this man's life. So he does. He simply says, get up, take your bed and walk. Verse 8, get up take your bed and walk. That's all he has to say. Again, it's crazy, but like Jesus has, like sometimes he does the weird stuff with the mud in the eyes and stuff like that, but he, if he wants to, he can just be like, dude, get up. Get up. And the man is instantly healed and he picks up the stretcher slash mat that was his reality for the largest part of his life and he just starts walking, but don't miss that scene. Jesus speaks the command, get up, and we have to assume that something in this guy just felt different. Have you ever fallen asleep have you ever fallen asleep and somehow in the middle of you sleeping, your arm falls asleep? You know what I'm talking about. And then you wake up and you think your spouse is trying to strangle you. You know what I mean? You're like, ah, like this guy has had no use of his limbs for 38 years. You'd think it'd be like a, like a baby giraffe, right? And Jesus is like, hey, get up and walk. And the guy just gets up and walks. I mean, 38 years. And he immediately just has the strength to get up and walk away. But, but also don't miss that apparently he doesn't say anything to Jesus. Jesus says, hey, get up, take your mat, and walk. And the guy's like, cool, whoop. Now, maybe, maybe this dude just thinks it's the disconnected power of God, or maybe this is the angel that troubles the waters, and he just like, feels so bad for him that he just shows up and says, hey, let me give you a freebie out of pity. John doesn't tell us, but he does tell us this guy just goes on his way. But we also see later that Jesus kind of like slinks off too, right? We see later, the man didn't even know who it was because there was enough action between them for the guy to know until Jesus, again, presses in and encounters him later on. Jesus was the only one with the power to change this man's life, but he was also the only one willing to step in and change this man's life, right? That's part of the point. There were people around this man that could have helped him before, but they didn't. There was a temple down the street where if somebody wanted to help this man, they could have, but they didn't. And then Jesus shows up. And this is going to cause a bigger problem for other people because verse 9 tells us that day was the Sabbath. Now, when the Jews, the religious ruling class, encountered this miracle, this 38-year invalid who was now walking without actually getting into this magical pool, all they had for him was criticism. Not like, wow, this is amazing. Not like, wow, did the pool work? Not like, wow, somebody was actually helping you? What they said, verse 10, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. 
What a jerky thing to say to a guy that's just been healed. How blind do you have to be? If you knew someone who had been paralyzed their whole life, in a wheelchair their whole life, and all of a sudden they get up and walk, and, and you're like, will you please take your dishes to the sink? Like, come on, right? It'd be weird. That's a weird response. And this particular rule they considered broken was the one of caring, which they pulled from Jeremiah 17. Now, we can, we can, we can uh, be hard on them. But they did try as much as possible as they built these rules in the pull from places in Scripture. They pulled it from Jeremiah 17, 21 and 22, which forbids carrying a burden. But they had made this so specific that at a certain point they even decreed that the shofar that they were to, to, to be sounded, right? That if a shofar was like broken or misplaced and they had to walk and get a shofar on the Sabbath then what are they going to do? Because they can't carry anything on the Sabbath. So then they initiated a new rule to just not sound the shofar on the Sabbath so that nobody, I mean, that's work, right? For a day of rest, they sure made it a lot of work. Not only were they not impressed with the miracle, they were bothered because this man was violating the Sabbath. They had very specific actions that were not to be done. Why? Because we're not quite sure that God thought about everything. So what he didn't consider, we need to make sure that we button up those edges so that nobody violates what's actually the will of God because God wasn't specific enough. Does that feel a little arrogant to you? Does it, does it feel like they're trusting in the power of God or are they adding the power of man to the power of God? No one but Jesus would work on this day. And they suffered from the same problem that this man had, that all these people at the pool had. They disconnected God's work from his person. They made his work things that they should be doing rather than God's work. So they weren't concerned about this man getting healed because they probably didn't even think it was really from God. They may have seen it the same way. They weren't impressed by that. What was more important to them than the healing of this man was the observance of their guardrails to keep God appeased. There's another kind of religious superstition that seems to be more acceptable, believing that you can please God by adding to his standards, believing that you can actually access the favor and the power of God by doing more than what God commands you to do. But that's actually the same problem. That's actually spiritual paralyzation because you're assuming that you can do in your work what God can't what God can't make sure of. And that's the real problem of sin, verses 11 through 15. That's where we get to sort of the core here. One of the things to be pointed out here is the response of the man. So they're like, hey, you're in trouble. You shouldn't be walking. It's on the Sabbath. It's a Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your bedroll. And he says, well, the man who made me well told me pick up your bedroll. And he's right, right? He was healed. And the person who healed him is like, pick up your bedroll. So he's like, well, it's not my fault. The guy like, made me well and then said, pick up your bedroll. And I feel like it makes sense because I want to go away from this pool because I'm, I'm better now. It makes sense. The man does what makes sense. He listens to the man who actually had the power to heal him. But then, then they immediately turn on Jesus. Verse 12, who's this man who told you pick up your bedroll and walk? The man who was cured didn't know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into a crowd that was there. Again, this guy was healed and didn't really pay attention to who it was that was healing him. They turn on Jesus. They focus now their attentions on the healer. Okay, fine, so you're healed, but we want to know who this guy is who told you to break the Sabbath, so it's his fault. 
But instead of seeing a work of God, seeing a miraculous healing, they're just focusing on when it was done. And they're just as delusional as a man waiting for years to get into a magic pool. Because this happened on the Sabbath, they can't get past their own categories for who God should be or how God should work. And in fact, they're so committed to their own understanding of God, they miss the identity of the healer also. They miss the identity of this God who healed a lame man. And and they should have known because Jeremiah 31 verse 8 says, Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame. Micah 4, 6, and 7 says, In that day declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those who I have afflicted, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those who were cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And again in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. I mean, there's quite a bit of promises about God doing restorative work among the lame. Do you understand that in in Scripture? And the ones who should have expected the way in which the Messiah would work probably should have been these guys, these guys who were experts on making more out of the Sabbath. You think they wouldn't have missed the Messiah And Jesus makes an important part also in Luke 6. In Luke chapter 6, after he heals a man with a withered hand, he says to the people who are opposing him, the Jews who are opposing him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? He's like, okay, boys, what's the point of the Sabbath in the first place? Is it not to do good? Here are these religious experts who seem to be confused by how God is actually supposed to be working. But why were they seemingly okay with people gathering for an indirect power of God to heal them by chance? Why are these religious experts okay with a group of people going to a pool where there may or may not have have been an angel, and they won't lift a finger to help them, but they're perfectly fine with them accessing some sort of disconnected supernatural power? But when it comes to this man being healed on the Sabbath, now they have a problem because now they're losing their control. You see what's happening here? How exactly do we expect God to work? That's a good question for us. Are we like that? How do we expect God to work? Do we put these guardrails around God and say, he's only going to work for me if I do X, Y, and Z? And if not, then I'm I'm out of luck. Or are we just sitting and waiting on something fantastic to happen? In verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said, see, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, before we look at this real quick, remember, Jesus always finds who he's looking for. That's awesome, right? Put that in your pocket. Jesus always finds who he's looking for. You can't dodge Jesus. I tried for a short period of time in my 20s. It was miserable. Somebody amen that. (laughs) Some of you have been there. Some of you are there right now, maybe. Jesus is not done with this guy yet, right? Jesus uses a very similar phrase as the question he posed earlier. See, you have become well. He's talking physically. See, you've become well. But now he emphasizes a command that comes with this new reality. Sin no more. And the reason? So nothing worse may happen to you. Now, if we're not careful in how we read this, though, we might think that this man's paralysis was the direct result of some sin. And while it's true, there are places in Scripture where God says, if you don't stop doing this, I'm going to afflict you. Like Hezekiah would be a great example. Okay, but if we look in John chapter 9, when they encounter the man who's been blind since birth and Jesus' disciples are like, so who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus is like, neither, right? It was so the glory of God might be manifest in him right here. 
that make sense? So we can't just assume that this guy, that Jesus is saying, hey, your sin got you into this mess, don't get back into the same mess, right? I find it difficult to believe that Jesus is saying that because this man who was born in blind in John 9, Jesus, like, I, I see John kind of telling the same story. So why the warning about sin after this man has already become well? Jesus healed him, right? Dude, there was no precondition for Jesus healing him. He just said, get up. He didn't ask him a bunch of questions. It's, it's different than even the, the last two instances when Jesus encounters somebody, right? There's much less interaction. He's like, do you want to be well? Get up. That's it. His problem was not just his physical infirmity, but his understanding of God's work and God's power. He somehow saw God's power as able to be disconnected from God's personal work. In other words, this man didn't really know God personally. He believed that God existed and that there was power available in the world, but it was more based on chance and his human action. Basically, he thought anybody can access God's power if you're in the right place at the right time or in the right group. And unfortunately, that's maybe where some of us fall that it's just out there to grab, right? That it's not personal. But Jesus proves, don't miss what's happening in this text, Jesus proves that God's work is personal. God's work is always personal. It is not random chance. It is not some sort of superstitious magic. It isn't randomly accessed with the right words. It is not accessed by the right religious activity. You can't like magic spell Jesus into working for you. You don't command him to work and he does your bidding. If you do the right things, you don't say the right words and pray the right prayers this many times in a row and magically there's hope for you. That's not how God works. And this same confusion is seen not only in the superstition of the invalid sitting by a pool waiting for healing, but also by the Jews who completely ignored the power of Jesus working because it happened on the wrong day. The sin of the Jews in John's gospel is that they refuse to accept that Jesus' power isn't actually coming, that it's actually coming from God. They're like, this power is not from God. That's their mistake. That's their sin. Their commitment to their own understanding of God will not allow them to see God when he actually reveals himself. What is worse than being a physical invalid waiting for a miracle? being a spiritual invalid and denying the miracle of God revealing himself in Christ. The real problem of sin is rejecting the God who has made himself known in Jesus. It's rejecting his revelation. The core issue of sin is ignoring the reality of the power and the presence of God. It is supplanting God with a cheap imitation and maybe even worse, supplanting God with ourselves. This is the whole point of the prologue. Jesus is the self-revelation of God's character and power to humanity. To deny Jesus is to deny the power of God. Jesus' charge to the man who has been healed is really the same charge he gives to everybody he encounters. Believe in me. Believe in me. Not believe just that you're well, but believe in me. Believe that I am the one who has power over life and death. Believe that I am the one who has the power over the body. Believe that I am the Father, right? I and the Father are one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, I and the Father are one. If you see him working, you see me working. Does that make sense? Believe. The man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. After this interaction, this man runs, runs off to the Jews and now tells them, right? Now, here's, here's the problem. We aren't given the resolution we like here because in these other things, like these other stories that we've had, the Samaritans believe, right? The official believes. 
We don't get that here. We don't know if this guy believes or not. We're not told that this man actually believed who Jesus is who he said he was. And maybe he didn't. Maybe the reality is not everybody who encounters Jesus believes that he is the Son of God. Maybe that's the, the, one of the truths that's in this. Like, not everybody that Jesus heals is going to confess him as Lord. But Jesus still warned, and he still worked. He still worked. And it actually further makes this point that John is making right here. Jesus doesn't act in response to the individual's action. Jesus is not like, show me something, and then I will heal you. Jesus heals them and then calls them to believe. Does that make sense? Jesus is gracious, and then he calls us to believe. He acts because of his own intent and his own purpose. The root of sin also involves thinking that we can somehow dictate how or when God will work based on our actions. If you're in here this morning and you think your life is upset because you're just, you just don't know the right way to get God to do what you want, you're thinking about God all wrong. He does all that he pleases, but he is gracious and kind. And whatever situation you find yourself in, he is inviting you to believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. Believe in the work of the Son. All we know is now the resistance to Jesus is going to escalate even more, and the warning to the man is ringing in our ears as the Jews begin to increase this resistance. Right? See, you have become well. Stop sinning. Right? Believe. Change your mind. And in verses 16 through 18, this is the exclamation point on this passage. God's work is always personal, always personal. Verse 16, therefore the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This whole narrative and the problem the Jews had with Jesus began because he intentionally sought to do works on the Sabbath. Jesus was sort of picking a fight a little bit. If you see how many times he was healing on the Sabbath, he's like, let's talk about this. Let's talk about who you think I am. They held on to their superstition. In fact, this was the judgment of Israel as a whole throughout the Old Testament. They continually denied God's work while acknowledging him with their lips and observances. They continually followed other gods, other idols, and they thought, well, we can appease God if we come back to him, but they were constantly trusting in other things to save them. Regardless of the display of his power, they couldn't get past the Sabbath violation because they refused to receive the truth about Jesus, which Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I am working. They had a big problem with the Sabbath, right? Jesus has identified himself with the Father before, but it's now when the Jews begin to understand the claim that he's making. Now they start to get it and the work that he's been sent to do. God has not stopped working, and Jesus is doing the Father's work here and now. And one misunderstanding that we have that the Jews actually knew is that God didn't actually rest in the way that we think he did after creating the world. Because here's like, we, I don't know if we have a picture. Sometimes God created everything, and then he sat down on a lazy boy and watched television. Is like, done. If God stops working, we all die. And scripture is very clear. All things are held together, right, by the power of Christ. All things are held together. If God stops working, if the Father stops working, if the Son stops working, we all stop working. Everything in the universe stops working. So this rest that, that God took was not the kind of rest that we think it is, right? And even 
these horizons of Scripture. There's different kinds of work and rest. God rested as a pattern for human beings to be able to rest and observe His work, right? But then we're, He's still working. He's always working. That's what Jesus is saying. He knew that the Jews knew that God didn't rest that way, that God was always working. And so then Jesus equates Himself with the Father by saying, I am working. I can do this on the Sabbath. So God can't really break the Sabbath because He's always working. He's personally involved in the holding together of all things. The one big positive about them is they weren't deists in that sense. But many people in our modern culture, they talk about God, but it's a little g God. They think God just spun the world into motion, then he stepped back, and then we're in control of everything. And I can't tell you how horrific that idea would be. Because if we're in control, we're all in a lot of trouble. But Scripture also makes it clear that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created through Him, so the Son is always working also, even when He takes on flesh. In other words, the Sabbath doesn't bind Jesus because Jesus created it. He initiated it, right? He's the one who brought it into being. When Jesus says, I am working, he's making it clear God's power is not an impersonal power to be hoped in or accessed by superstition, like the people waiting by a pool for healing. God's power is at work in the world personally. Jesus has made God's power known as he's working. What you see Jesus doing is what God is doing. God's work is always personal, and new life through Christ is received personally. And we see them finally understand this in verse 18. Now it's clear. He claims equality with God, and now we have to kill him. Their blindness caused them to seek to murder the one that they believe they're actually defending. They think they're defending God, and he's standing right in front of them, and their response to defend God is to kill him. That is spiritual ineptitude. They are the ones who are really paralyzed. Do you see what's happening here? They're the ones who need to be healed. The law was given through Moses to point God's people to God. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God, in person, walking with his creation, and his own people missed it because they missed him. And this also shows us in this story the insufficiency of religion that is dependent on the power of man. Only God himself can help us. This is how blind we are. Only God himself can help us. Even when he gives us a system and says, get to me, we can't do it because we screw it up. Right? All the time. We can't make the way to God. Even when men get a hold of God's law, they make it their own and apply human wisdom and practice to it. Only Christ can accomplish the work necessary for us to be truly healed of our greatest affliction. Our action is powerless to do it. It doesn't matter how hard you work to be better. It doesn't matter how hard you work to change your situation. If you don't know the God who works, you will never experience true healing. If you don't know Jesus, even if your situation changes, your eternity is one to worry about. Only God can help us. Only Christ can accomplish the work necessary for us. Superstition will not change our state. Neither will man-made religion. Christ had to do the work necessary to mediate on our behalf. The God-man. Christ now having finished the work he came to do, now on, this, on this side of it, right, is now resting and reigning at the right hand of the Father, and he's still working to give life to the spiritually lame by the power of his Spirit. And what is even more astounding is that in his completed work, he now invites his people into his personal work. 
The Father is working. And Jesus is working. And he finished the work that made salvation possible for us. And then get this. He makes us well. And then he invites us into his work. It's amazing. Right? So everything changes. Sabbath changes. The nature of Sabbath changes. The nature of our work changes because we rest in Christ as we're working according to his gospel, because we're working through his power that he works within us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Where we go, Jesus is always with us. Always. Jesus is still working. Do you see his work? He's working in and through his people. He's working to bring sight to the blind. He's working to bring movement to the spiritually lame. The question for us this morning is, do you see his work? Are you afflicted? Are you in the middle of an affliction and you just think, if I can just find some way to get through this, like and maybe you're approaching God as being off and distant. Let me tell you, God knows exactly where you're at. Where you're at, he knows exactly what you need. And if you're waiting on him, wait longer. He is with you. He meets us in our affliction with kindness and love. And even if you're in a hard spot because of your sinful decisions, he speaks to you the same admonishment, right? Stop sinning. Trust in me. Stop sinning. That question, do you want to be healed? Are you just content waiting on miracles to happen? Have you tried a million different things to change your life, but most of it's probably just superstitious? Are you trying to work harder to earn his favor and his healing? Are you hoping that an impersonal God has some random power out there for you to grab? Remember, Jesus always finds who he's looking for. Maybe it's you. Trust his work. Personally encounter the personal God. For those of you in here who are believers, are you resting in the finished work of Christ? Are you treating God as though he's there, but he's not personally and actively involved in your life? Well, stop sinning. Receive the wellness that he wants you to have. Receive the wholeness that he offers to you in his presence and his work. What are you looking to for your hope? And church, are we taking on work that's not God's work? Are we focusing on things that aren't at the heart of God's revealing work in Christ? Are we involved? Are we just involved in superstitious action because we think it's going to sway people's opinion? Or are we convinced that the Great Commission was given to us for a reason? Go out and share the gospel. Tell people that there is a personal God who personally made them, who's personally giving them grace right now and time to repent and to know him personally. Jesus made it personal. Will you walk in his finished work this morning? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We ask that you would help us to believe what we desperately need to believe. Lord, help us understand the work that you have done on our behalf. Help us to understand our great need for you. Lord, help us to understand and receive the healing that you offer to us through repentance and faith. Lord, give us joy in our salvation and help us to be those who are about pointing other people to the only one who can truly heal. Lord, we love you. We praise you this morning. We ask for your grace and mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.